Okay, Ephesians chapter 1, I'll start in verse 3 and read through verse 14. Our focus will be verses 7 through 10. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Okay, again, the focus is verses 7 through 10. Last time we looked at verses 3 through 6. As Paul opens up the letter of Ephesians by kind of showing us the Trinitarian work of salvation. This is a, a, a praise statement here before he really gets into the letter. Because, you know, after that, verses 15 through the end of chapter 1 is, is his thanksgiving and prayer. Paul typically works that way. Right, He greets, uh, he usually gives some word of encouragement, then he prays, and then he kind of gets into what he wants to talk about. Now, like I said, this is a letter that's not like others. In a lot of ways, it's more like Romans than it is like Corinthians or Colossians. Um, it's not written to answer a specific question, not written to uh, correct a specific error. It's written to sort of highlight the blessings that we have in Christ, to highlight the glory of Christ in the life of the church. And here in verses 3 through 14, we see how the church is a Trinitarian work. It is, a, it is chosen by God. It is redeemed by the Son, which we'll see th this morning. And it, and it is sealed by the Holy Spirit, which we'll see, Lord willing, next week. So last time we looked at chosen by the Father, right? That's, that's how Paul opens. God is to be praised. God is to be worshipped as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Again, that union with Christ, very important in Paul's thought, very important in, really, all of Scripture, very important for our understanding of salvation. Uh, we shouldn't look at salvation as things that we get along the way. It's, it's all one gift that is sort of has its, you know, we can distinguish between certain things, but all of these things are ours now in Christ. We, we, you know, yes, we wait for our glorification, but in a sense, it's already ours in Christ. Yes, we wait for our full sanctification, but it's already ours in Christ. We have justification because it is already ours in Christ. So union with Christ is very important, but we see God has blessed us in Christ. It is always on the basis of that. 
with every spiritual blessing. Everything we need for the Christian life has been given to us and is reserved in the heavenly places, uh, even as he, what, chose us. So God the Father elected us. That's the word in the Greek is uh, eklegomai. It's to choose. It's to pick out. He chose us. Who's us? The people of God, right? Not just New Testament church, the people of God, Old New Testament. All those who will be in Christ, all those who are in Christ, all those who have been in Christ and are still in Christ were chosen by God in Christ before the world ever began. That's, that's the reality that Paul wants to get. That's the reality behind what we see working in space and time, working in the here and now, is that all of this is the working out of a plan that God had before the world began. So chosen. He chose us before the foundation of the world, not on anything that we've done. We've been chosen for a purpose, to be holy and blameless. We have been predestined. We've been set apart for a specific um, goal, and that is to be uh, adopted through Christ, all, to his, all through his purpose, all according to his purpose, all to the praise of his glory. So this is to redound to the praise of God. This teaching is meant to uh, result in our praise and worship of the triune God who has done all of these things for us. It is not meant to be a club to bash over somebody's head who's not a believer and says, well, I'm chosen and you're not, because we have no basis upon which to boast in that. Paul will get to that in chapter 2. It is by grace you've been saved. right? It is by unmerited favor that you've been saved. You have no reason to boast. You have no, no one is going to be in heaven saying, that I got here because I was the best, I was the smartest, I was the wisest, I was the, you know, the handsomest or the prettiest or whatever. No one's going to be able to say that. We are all there by grace. And thus it is not a cause to uh, hold over against those who are not believers. It is a cause to praise God. And it is also a cause to go forth and proclaim this good news to others. Right? Because we don't know who the elect are. We don't know who's chosen before the foundation of the world. So we go forth and we proclaim this gospel knowing that God will convert those who, whom he has chosen. Right? That, that's, that's how it works. That's the means through which, uh, we'll see this next week, the, when, when he says, when you heard the word of truth, that's the means through which God, then what he has accomplished in eternity past, uh, takes place in the here and now through the preaching of the word of truth, through the hearing of the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. So anyway, that's probably a little more <laughs> than I wanted to review for last week, but um, you know, it's like you put a quarter in the pastor and he just keeps going. So, um, so as we go into verses 7 through 10, where before we saw chosen, predestined, adoption, uh, before the foundation of the world, when we look at verses 7 through 10, we're going to see redemption. We're going to see forgiveness. We're going to see union with Christ again. That is the purpose for all of this uh, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. All things work together to, uh, for the purpose of the Son, to glorify the Son. All will be in union with the Son. And that's what we're going to see this morning, that the Father is to be praised because his purpose was always to redeem a chosen people by the blood of his Son, or through the blood of his Son. You know, you can say it either way. It's by means of the blood of his Son. The Father is to be praised because he 
His purpose was always to redeem a chosen people through or by the blood of his son. So I've got four points. Three of them are on verse 7. <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, it's a good thing I didn't do all, you know, 3 through 14 in one lesson. As I look at verse 7, I was like, well, there's, you know, there's three things there. I mean, you know, you've got what? You've got redeemed through his blood, forgiven of our sins, and according to the riches of his grace. All of that is in verse 7, and there's so much there. Uh, and then I feel like I'm short, I may be shortchanging verses 8 through 10, but that's uh, the last point. That is the mystery of the Father's will. So let's get started without any further ado. So as we continue to look at this, the greatest run-on sentence in redemptive history, I don't know if that's how Paul intended it, but the greatest run-on sentence in redemptive history, Paul continues in verse 7 by saying, in him. He is uh, front-loading, if you will, this idea of union with Christ. Before he talks about redemption, he says, first you have to realize it is in him. It is, again, in him. This, this is a theme throughout these verses. It is, uh, it is a theme throughout the first three chapters of Ephesians, this in him, in Christ, in the beloved, however you want to put it. Uh, it is front-loaded. It is first and foremost in the apostle's mind. This redemption is in Christ. We have been redeemed. And we have been, uh, as we look at this, we move along in this Trinitarian work of salvation. We move from the Father who chose us before the foundation of the world to now the work of the second person, the Son, through whom or in Him, through whom we have redemption. Redemption. I just like the word in Greek, apolutrosis. It sounds like a disease, right? We have apolutrosis, but that's a good thing. Okay, we have redemption. Uh, in simple terms, the idea of redemption is a buying back. Okay, I may have used this before. Um, you know, I grew up, my parents used to collect S&H green stamps. And then you, you fill them up in this little book, right? That's all I remember. I mean, I was probably five or six. You fill them up in this little book, you take them to the grocery store, and you're able to get like a toaster or, or a whatever, you know, depending on how many stamps you collected. You, you are redeeming. Right? You, you buy so many dollars worth of groceries, you get so many stamps, and then once you get enough stamps, you go back to the grocery store and you get something for it. It's sort of a, a way to you know, generate business and so on. But you are buying back. And the way the word is used in the Greek, it is meant to carry the idea of a release, a setting free, a, 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 a deliverance. It is used to speak of someone who is held captive, someone who is held as a slave, and now they are set free. They have been redeemed. They have been, they have been bought. Is, the language is used in the slave marketplace of those days where you would go and you'd go to the slave auctions and you would buy a slave. You are, in a sense, redeeming that person. Now, in that sense, probably not for good reasons, but you know, Christ is buying us for a very good reason. So we have redemption. And if we have redemption in Christ, from what were we redeemed? Well, if you remember when we looked at Romans, Romans chapter 6, we are redeemed from our slavery to sin. Romans chapter 6 and verse 15 and following, Paul there says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to, uh, to whom 
you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. So again, there that idea that Paul is saying in Romans is you have been bought from slavery to sin. But you're not set free to go and do whatever you want. You are, it's just like, again, from the, the slave marketplace. Someone goes to the slave markets, buys a slave. That person now is under the authority of the one who bought him. Right? So when you are a slave to sin, Christ, in a sense, buys you from that slave auction, and now you are a, a servant of his. You are, as Paul says here, a slave to righteousness. Verse 20 of chapter 6. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't, you didn't care about the law. You just did whatever you want. But then he says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? But now, verse 22, that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end eternal life. Right? That's why Jesus will say in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you, right? You are weary and you're heavy laden because you are under the yoke of the law. You're under the uh, interpretation of the law by the Pharisees and the scribes, which is a legalistic burden. You are slave to sin. Jesus says, I set you free. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You have now become a slave to righteousness. Ever since the fall, mankind was born in Adam. And as such, we are born into a state of, as our confessions say, a state of sin and misery, or slavery to sin. We need redemption. We need apolutrosis. <laughs> we, we need to be redeemed. We need to be bought back. Now, redemption comes at a price, right? Now, it's not a price that the slave pays. Right? It, you know, the slave is just a slave. He gets bought. What's the price? The price of redemption is the precious blood of Christ. Now, when we say precious blood of Christ, it's not to mean that if Christ, you know, well, you know Jesus was a carpenter, right? Worked with his father until he went and started his ministry. If Jesus pricked his finger on a nail and he bled, well, that's not going to buy our redemption, right? <laughs> when we say the blood of Christ, we mean his substitutionary death. Right, His shed blood on the cross, his broken body on the cross, his death, his atoning death, his substitutionary death, his propitiatory death. That is the price of our redemption. Christ had to die in order to purchase us from our slavery to sin. I'm going to turn to a number of passages here. Uh, Matthew 20. Matthew 20. Verse 28. Where there Jesus says, now this is, you know, they're getting close to the passion at this point in Matthew's gospel. But there in chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says, even as the Son of Man, that's him, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a 
ransom for many. A ransom, a, a, a price, right? He, he, his life is the price. Um, notice he'd come, he came not to be served. Christ, of course, deserves to be served. But that was not his purpose. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Another chapter 20, verse 28, this time in the book of Acts. I don't think there's any theme to, to, to twenty twenty-eight, but in Acts 20, verse 28. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders. So he's returning from his third missionary trip. He wants to stop and, and, and revisit the church in Ephesus, but... He doesn't want to go into the city of Ephesus because the last time he was there, they tried to kill him, <laughs> right? Uh, that seems to be kind of uh, the way of life for Paul. So he, they, he meets the Ephesian elders in a, in a nearby town called uh, Miletus. And in chapter 20 of, verse, uh, of, of Acts, verse 28, he says to them, the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So care for the church in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So they've been called to watch the flock, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Well, well God didn't bleed. Well, no, God incarnate bled. <laughs> the Son bled, right, because he was incarnate. Uh, so whatever you could say, you know, we talk about this. It's, it's a fancy phrase. It's called the hypostatic union. But it, you talk about the union of deity, the divine and the human in the person of Christ, whatever is said of the person Jesus, you can, in a sense, say of either God or the human Jesus, right? So when Jesus bled on the cross, there's a sense in which you could say God bled. Now, God doesn't have a body. He doesn't bleed. It's not part of his nature. But in Christ, God bled, which he obtained with his own blood. In Romans... That great passage in Romans 3, uh, verses 24, 25. Paul there says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then he goes on in verse 24. And are justified. How? By his grace as a gift. By what means? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So the propitiation, the justification that we have, the redemption that we have is by his blood. Colossians 1.14, which is kind of uh, almost a word-for-word repetition of Ephesians 1.7, says, In whom, that is Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. A couple more. I know we're just kind of going all over the place, but I'm just showing you this idea of the blood of Christ. One I want to focus, there's a couple, there's one I want to focus on, but there's one more I just want to touch on briefly. It's 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. There Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed, there's that idea again of redemption, bought, you know, the price was paid. 
you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So, you know, Peter there is kind of making a reference to the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? In, in, in order to make a sin offering that would cover your sins, you had to sacrifice a lamb or a goat that was spotless, pure, unblemished. Now, Hebrews will say the blood of bulls and goats does not atone for sin. So that animal is not actually, effectually atoning for your sins, but it is a type and a shadow that points forward to Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who was spotless, who was blameless, who was holy, and by His blood we are ransomed, we are redeemed. Now the passage I want to focus on in this light is Hebrews uh, 9, some verses from 9 and some verses from 10. See, aren't you glad I broke this up into sections? Um, it's a little bit of a deep dive here. So in Hebrews 9, starting in verse 12, this is the author here is talking about Christ as our high priest. He goes, he, earlier he talks about how Jesus is a high priest on the order of Melchizedek. You're like, well, who's Melchizedek? Well, Join us Sunday evenings as we look through the book of Genesis, and when we eventually get to Genesis 14, you will find out who Melchizedek is. Um, he is a priest and a king who kind of, in a sense, comes out of nowhere. And, and uh, the author makes a lot of hay on that here, comparing Jesus to that priesthood. But now he talks about Jesus' priestly work. And he says in verse 11, when Christ appeared as our high priest, there's a but, so he's contrasting. He's contrasting with the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, how the, the priests would have to perform these sacrifices over and over and over and over again. But, favorite word, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, so not the earthly tent, the heavenly tent, verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, the heavenly tent, the heavenly temple. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For of the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. That's the ritual cleanness, okay? Uh, you have to understand the Old Testament sacrifices as a ritual cleansing, right? You are ritually clean. In other words, You've done what God has prescribed in order to, to enter into his presence and worship. You are not actually clean. It is, it is a sort of a sign. It's a, a sign and a seal that points to a greater reality, which is what Christ does. How much more? So if the, if, if the blood of bulls and goats can purify the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, purify our conscience from dead works to serve God, therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He carries on this thought in chapter 10, verse 4 and following. For it is impossible 
That's pretty kind of final, right? <laughs> impossible means what? Not possible. <laughs> I know you pay me the big bucks to explain these, these fancy highfalutin words, right? <laughs> it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said sacrifices and offerings, this is a citation from uh, Psalm 40. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. In other words, the old covenant was in place until Christ came. Christ comes, the old covenant is obsolete, and he establishes a new covenant. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That means his work was done. Christ sits down, his work is done. Priests never sit down. Every priest in the Old Testament, when they are serving and when they are working in the temple, they are always standing. When, the, when they sit down is when they're no longer serving in the temple, when their time is done and you know, they can go and sit down. Christ offers one sacrifice, once for all time. He sits down. It is a redeeming sacrifice. It is a sacrifice of his own blood that pays the ransom for our sins. So I belabor this point because... We are saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ. And thus we should take our sin seriously. Okay? Sin is serious business. We tend to, at least, you know, I'll just speak for myself. I tend to at times give myself way more grace than I allow toward other people, right? I want other people to be judged in righteousness, and I want myself to receive all kinds of grace, right? My sins are little white, you know, they're little peccadilloes. Everyone else's sins are grievous, uh, you know, affronts to the holiness of God, right? Um, We downplay our sin, call them mistakes, um, peccadilloes. Sin is serious business because it required the Holy Son of God to come in human form shed his blood on the cross in order to redeem us, to set us free from the dominion of sin. All right, that's point one. Point two. The second, or the second part of verse seven, and you can go back to Hebrews if you're not, or sorry, Ephesians, uh, if you haven't already gone back. So we saw verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, The forgiveness of our trespasses. This redemption accomplished something, and that something was the forgiveness of our trespasses. That word forgiveness, aphasis, carries the meaning of a release or pardon or a cancellation. The debt has been paid. When Christ redeemed us by his blood, the bill of our sins was stamped, paid in full. It's been canceled. 
I, I love what Paul said. I, you know, I'm sorry I keep turning back and forth, but I love what Paul says in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. Colossians and Ephesians have a lot of similarities to them. Uh, both are prison epistles, um, so they might have been written in short, you know, uh, briefly from one another. But Paul in Colossians 2, verse 13 says, And you, speaking to the Colossian church, you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcised, uh, uncircumcision of your flesh. Very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 2.1. Having, uh, but God made alive together. So in you who were dead in trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The imagery there is uh, when the Romans crucified people, when they hung a criminal on the cross, it was customary to nail the crime for which that person was being crucified on the cross. Now, when it came to Jesus Christ, the only thing they nailed to the cross was Jesus Christ, Son of, you know, Son of God, King of the Jews, right? You know, that's the only thing they could, that's the only thing he would admit to because that's the only quote-unquote crime he committed. So Jesus was nailed to the cross. Now, Paul, if you remember Galatians, right? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. In a sense, because of our union with Christ, we are nailed to the cross. And there's one more thing that's been nailed to that cross, and that's our sins. That's what Paul says here in Colossians 2. The record of debt, the receipt, the bill due for our sins has been nailed to that cross. So the crimes that Jesus has committed because he stood in our place are our crimes, our sins, our trespasses, our uh, rebellion against God. Why? Because, well, he took upon himself the weight of our sin. God imputed to him our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. And then so that we can become the righteousness of God through him. Those have been nailed to the cross. Those legal demands have been set aside, nailed to the cross, paid in full. Paid in full. That's why Jesus could say on the cross in John 19 when we get there, to Telestai, it is finished. It is finished. The work is done. The debt has been paid. And because we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, the debt of our trespasses has been paid. And that is a cause for what? Praise and worship. Why? Christ has redeemed us. Our sins have been forgiven. They have been canceled. Praise should erupt from our hearts because of this. Praise should erupt from our hearts because of this. Just, I'm going to read from a few passages. You could just listen if you'd like. Exodus 34, 7. I've referenced this many, many times. But God, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin to those who love him. David in Psalm 32, which Paul quotes in Romans 4, 32, verses 1 and 2, David here says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, 
and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Again in the psalm, Psalm 86, 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquity, who could stand? If, those, if that record of sins actually was held against us, who could stand? What's the answer to that question? No one, right? No one. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who, O Lord, could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The prophets speak of this. Isaiah 55. This is the passage in which you get the later on, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. But before that, Isaiah the prophet says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I love that. Abundantly pardon. Why? Because we need abundant pardon. Right? We need abundant. We don't need a little bit of pardon. And God is not like, well, okay, I'll pardon you a little bit, but yeah. No. He abundantly pardons. Abundantly pardons. Jeremiah, the passage on the, the new covenant, part of the blessings of the new covenant is that we have our sins forgiven. Isaiah, or, sorry, Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So that's sort of the flip side to forgiveness. The flip side to forgiveness is that God remembers our sins no more. He doesn't forget. God can't forget. This is, a, again, Hebrew way of speaking. God will not bring those up against us. Right? You know, we forgive. Right? You, someone sins against you and and you say, I forgive you. And then, you know, a year later when they tick you off again, you say, remember that time a year ago when you did that and I forgave you? Well, God doesn't do that. <laughs> okay, You know, we tick God off all the time, right? This morning you, probably, you tick God off, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times. And God is like, I will remember that no more. I remember that no more. I will not bring those sins up. Why? Because they've been paid. They've been nailed to the cross. They've been paid. The word for trespasses uh, refers to those things that transgress. It's a, sort of like a crossing a boundary. That's the idea of the word. So we transgress. We step over the boundary of God's law. Another common word for sin, uh, the most common word that you see in the New Testament is hamartia, which means missing the mark. You're trying to hit a target and you miss. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 14, defines sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. Either you're missing the mark or you're crossing the boundary. In all of those, whether you don't do what the law requires or whether you do what the law doesn't, you know, forbids, God forgives these things, again, by means of the blood of Christ. 
Now, God doesn't ignore our sin. God doesn't overlook our sin. He doesn't pretend it's not there. He doesn't say, that's all right, try harder, because if God were to do that, that would be unjust. Right? You hear the skeptics often say, why did Jesus have to die? Why doesn't God just forgive us our sins? Well, he forgives us our sins because Jesus died. <laughs> right? That he had to be, as Roman, Paul says in Romans 3, he had to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in God. He is just because he requires the payment. But he is the justifier because he makes the payment himself. He is just and the justifier. He forgives our trespasses by taking the punishment upon himself to pay the debt. All right. Still in verse 7. Now the last part of verse 7. So in him we have redemption, through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. We saw a little bit of this as I've been reading some of those passages. God abundantly pardons. God is abounding in steadfast love and, and, and mercy. Why did the Father, through the Son, redeem us and forgive us our trespasses? It wasn't because of anything inherent in us. It wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because we earned it. Rather, it was because or according to the riches we're there, Plutos. We, we kind of bring that into English, if you've ever heard of like a plutocracy. Uh, a Plutarch is, you know, it's, it's government by the wealthy is kind of what it is. Well, the word there means wealth, riches of his grace, his favor, his unmerited favor. God abounds in steadfast love. God is abundant in grace. He's not miserly. I just referenced the passage in Exodus 34. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness. He's eager to forgive. God proclaims his name to Moses and starts by proclaiming his mercy and grace. God is often spoken of as being rich in mercy. Just look at chapter 2, verse 4. After he talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he says in verse 4, but God, two favorite words in the Bible, being rich in in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. That is the motivation of, of what he does when he makes us alive in Christ. It is because he is rich in mercy, because he has great love. He lavishes, it, we're going to see that in, in verse 8, he lavishes this on us. Again, he's not miserly. It's not like, here's a little bit of grace. I'll show you just enough grace so that you can, you can get by. But don't, don't ask me for any more grace now, okay, that you've used up your allotment for this month. You've got to wait until the month turns over. You know, I mean, he's not going to run out of grace at the end of the month. Like oftentimes when you were young and you ran out of paycheck before you can get paid again and you're living on ramen noodles and, you know, and whatever your mom had you know, left over in the fridge. No, he is rich in mercy. The riches of his grace, they will never run out. They are infinite. This mercy and grace was extended toward us before the foundation of the world and is ample reason to praise and worship God's amazing grace. But it's also a reason not to ignore sin. Recall what Paul says in Romans 6.1 where he says, Shall we sin that grace may abound? No. By no means. God forbid. Right? 
finally, let's look at verses 8 through 10. The mystery of the Father's will. So in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. Some translations say it's a dispensation for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. This grace, again, God lavishes. He abounds. He overflows. He pours it on. He layers it on. Again, because we need it. (laughs) We need it every day. I think of the song, the hymn, we sang it maybe, you know, about a month or so ago, and I, you know, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee, you know. God lavishes the grace upon us. And it's not, you know, it's done in wisdom and insight. This is all, again, part of God's plan that he is making to us, that he is accomplishing in us. God's choosing and the sons redeeming the elect are not an afterthought. It's not something God, you know, said in, it's not something God thought of after the fall. It was all part of the plan. That's why Paul refers to it as a mystery. We're going to see that word a lot uh, again. We'll see it again in, in uh, Ephesians here. And look at, just peek over at chapter 3, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Verse 6, this mystery. What is the mystery? Well, he reveals the mystery. So, spoilers. Uh, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Something that was hidden in the past is now manifest, revealed. Paul talks about a mystery in Colossians. The mystery is that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. It's all according to his purpose, or literally goodwill. We saw this before in verse 5. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose, or according to the good, will, uh, the good purpose of his will, the good pleasure of his will. Same thing here in verse 8 which he lavished upon us in all wisdom, making known to us the good, uh, the, the, sorry, the mystery of his will according to his good purpose, his good will, which he set forth in Christ. This, the, we talk about, you know, I'm trying to wrap this up here. We talk about covenant theology a lot, and, and, and what we see here is the covenant of redemption, this plan that God makes with the Son before the world created to redeem a people for him. That's what we see here. This is, this is all being done in eternity past, if that even makes sense. He's all, this is all being done in purpose in eternity past and being carried out now in space and time. This purpose has been to set forth in Christ in the fullness of time. If you remember, I, I referenced Galatians 4 a lot. That's, you know, Paul uses that idea of the fullness of time. And it's to unite all things in Christ. All things will sort of find their end goal, their end game in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth, that's everything. We'll all be united in Christ. We'll all find their, their summing up. That's really what the word means there. They are all summed up in Christ. I could reference more verses, but we are running out of time, so I'll just bring this to a close here. God has a plan for everything, and everything is going according to that plan. Nothing can thwart that plan. Not even our sin. That's good news. <laughs> our sin cannot thwart God's plan. 
Sin which the Son redeemed and the Father forgave so that all things can be brought together, summed up, brought under the head of Christ. That's more reason to praise and worship the Father because the Son redeemed us. He bought us with His precious blood out of slavery, united us to Himself through His blood. Now, of course, we should all lament the sin that made this necessary. We should all be, uh, you know, we shouldn't see grace as a, as a liberty to sin, right? And I don't say that, that that's what we do. I say that just because our propensity is to kind of fall into that kind of, you know, one, one way or the other. We either become overly legalistic or we become overly licentious one way or the other. We need to keep a balance here. We should lament the sin that brought this, you know, that made this necessary, Why? Because Christ shed his blood for us. Christ bled on the cross. He died on the cross for us. And that should be praise, again, more reason to praise the Father. But the work of the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we'll see the Holy Spirit, Lord willing, next week, is all of one purpose, right? The three members of the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity, are perfectly united in will and purpose here as they work this redemption it is culminating in all things under the lordship of Christ. And the good news is that those of those whom the Father chooses, they will be redeemed by the Son. All that the Father gives him, he will save. Right? That's what Jesus said in John's Gospel. All that the Father gives me, I will, I will save. All that the Father gives me, I will, I will lose none of them. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He will lose none. He will save all that the Father has given him to save. That is the purpose of the triune God, to unite all things under Christ.